Hello and welcome to Pursue the Talks, brought to you by Pursue, a bespoke leadership and transition coaching company with a mission to create, nurture and develop inspiring leadership across the global education sector. My name is Nicholas Mackay, Associate Professor, Certified Professional Coach and Director of Pursue. And I'll be your host in this second series of conversations, bringing you cutting edge stories from across the global education sector delving into the minds of recognised education experts to find out about the challenges and main issues they are facing and to explore what education could look like moving forward. In today's conversation, I'm delighted to welcome Chris Binge, who is the head of Markham College in Lima, Peru. Chris has been in international education since 1984, first at United World College in Singapore, then at the International School of Geneva, Ireland School in Hong Kong, and now Markham College in Lima. Chris has been school head in his last three schools, leading change and innovation. He's also worked for the International Baccalaureate as chair of the IB Diploma Programme Committee for four years. Chris, thank you so much for joining me um, from Peru. How's things? Hello, Nick. Thank you. It's a pleasure to join you. Um, We are uh, coping well in Peru. We've been in a fairly severe lockdown for some three months now, it's the middle of March that uh, uh, we've been in lockdown. So uh, the school's been teaching online um, it, since then. And, and looking forward, we may well be uh, teaching online in some format, uh, possibly for the rest of the year. Uh, our school year ends in December, so uh, we'll see how that goes. But uh, we've made a lot of advances. We've learned a lot as we've been doing it. And, um, and we're continually looking forward as, as positively as we can. So what exactly have you learned then, Chris? Um, That's a good question. We've learned that there are a lot of things that we can actually do quite well uh, online. And part of our debate as we move forward is going to be uh, what is it that we probably don't need a school for and what is it that we really do need a school for? Um, because I think that when we do go back, the government has talked about a gradual change, a gradual reintroduction. What's quite likely to happen is that we'll have students in school um, for part of the week, maybe mornings or afternoons, maybe some days. I don't know how what the directive will be, but uh, in, in an attempt to reduce student density on schools, it's likely that we will have to do that. So that leads to the question that you can't go back to the old normal and do exactly what we did before. So what are the things that we really do need to do in school? And what are the things that we are actually doing pretty well with them at home? And indeed, the next question is, are there some things that we're actually doing better with them at home? Um, And um, does that give us any indicators of what education might look like in the future? So it's a fascinating debate. And uh, if it weren't for the general inconvenience, um, as a colleague said to me the other day, we're actually living through very exciting times in education um, because it is provoking us to make uh, some interesting decisions and some interesting debates. You made some really interesting points there, Chris. So what conclusions are you coming to in relation to what you can potentially drop going forward and the things that you need to change going forward? I don't know whether, I think we're a long way from conclusions, but, but the debate circles around um, the, the function of school. Uh, uh, What's clear, obviously, with young people and their families in, in isolation, and, and as I say, it's been pretty strict for a long time, it's, it's relaxing now, but it's been pretty strict here, is that the school has had uh, a variety of different functions. Um, 
clearly, if you ask the kids, what do they miss most? It's the social function of school. Um, and in fact, if you dig down there, why do they come to school? They don't actually come to school primarily for the academic courses. They come to school for the social function. And, and that's a big part of their education, learning how to be with people, learning how to cast their own identity in a group setting, learning how to talk to uh, other young people, but also other adults and have relationships with them, which is very difficult uh, when you're isolated at home. Um, so, so that's a, a key issue as to what we need to think about providing when we go back. The academic aspect um, is, I won't say it's more complicated, but it, it, it's, it's a very different kettle of fish, really. And there's a change here that we notice depending on the age of the children. So uh, I do, I, as a head, I do a little bit of teaching. I don't do much teaching, but I teach the theory of knowledge course in the IB diploma. And uh, we've just done our uh, assessed presentations uh, for the November sitting of the IB with the class I've got, and we're now getting into their essay writing. And what I've noticed, and the other teachers have said, is that we've actually had a higher standard of work from them than we normally get. Certainly the quality of the assessed presentations have been the best I've seen for many years. That's interesting, isn't it? And uh, Yeah, and that's echoed in... A lot of other areas. A friend of mine is a design technology teacher and teaching predominantly for GCSE, uh, saying that he's getting the best work he's seen uh, in terms of design work. Um, and it, and that, that's repeated in a lot of ways. So the interesting thing is the question is whether the social aspect of the school, which is vitally important in itself, is also a distraction for when students need to study on their own. Um, and And maybe our education needs to look at um, providing areas which take away that distraction for independent study and also providing areas that focus on the social aspect. So uh, one, we're going to do a survey um, uh, in the next couple of weeks with our students and, and ask them what it is they miss about school, what it is that they're doing perfectly well at home and are there things that they're actually doing better at home what their what their uh, questions are going to be because i think that there's some some interesting debates and i think i i would phrase that in the context of changes in education that where schools have been rather behind compared with the rest of education if you talk to most adults and you, you say have you done a course recently many of them will say yes and it will have been an online course why are we not preparing our children to do online courses if the rest of their education in their lives is largely going to be online? Um, we know that transport is going to be hit. Flying around from place to place to attend a course or a workshop is going to happen less. So more and more of it will be online. We're seeing universities moving in that direction. I think uh, MIT was one of the first three or four years ago, five years ago, to put all of their lectures online for anybody who wants to see them. And I think they now have a system where you can get a qualification from MIT just by following the online process. Um, and they've got hundreds of thousands of people following courses that they only had a few hundred following um, in the past. It's a different experience, but it's a big experience for a lot of people. So I think we need to actively think about how you prepare young people for that kind of 
educational experience. It's strange, Chris, because uh, as you know, I, I run an international teacher training course at a UK university. And when we get all the reviews, we well, we have had a blended approach. So it's been a five-day face-to-face induction and then transitioning onto online sessions. And when we do all the reviews, the best feedback we get is from that face-to-face induction. Mm -hmm. People really appreciate the fact that it's blended and they can work at their own pace, synchronous and asynchronous learning. But it's that initial connection which people really, really appreciate. And that helps build that cohort spirit for the rest of the course. So it's interesting to see how all the feedback that you'll get from your student cohort to see actually what they find really um, is is needed face to face and what they can potentially do on their own. I think the the key word there is is the blend and and how you make that balance. Um, We ran a course last year, um, a group of uh, Latin American schools, um, and uh, I was six of us uh, across four or five different countries put together a, a thing we called LearnFest. And we invited schools to send people to join this course who were either working on an innovative and uh, it's focused around change, but working on an innovative project or would be open to doing something that, uh, that rallies the way things were happening in schools. Uh, and, and in order to mirror that, we, we tried a different strategy from what we'd done in the past. We had weekly online meetings, which were focused around the things that we put together. There were um, things they needed to read, things they needed to talk about, things they needed to feed back on. And uh, we, we used Zoom for, uh, we had about, I think, 30 people on the course. Um, so it wasn't massive. But every week we sat down for an hour, an hour and a half, and we chatted through the various issues that had been raised by the information that we'd put out during the course of the week. Uh, went into breakout rooms, came back, and, and, um, and we did this for hmm, six, eight weeks, I think. And then uh, once and only once, everybody then uh, went to Buenos Aires and uh, met together for a weekend. Um, and so it was the balance between so much being done online beforehand and then meeting together. If they hadn't met together, I think it would have died at that point. But because they then met together, they have independently carried on across the schools, across the region, talking to each other and saying, I told you about our project and our project is, is now doing this. And what are you doing? And there's been a continued exchange. So it needed to have that face to face. Absolutely. And uh, uh, but I think the fact that we could do so, if we just done the face to face like many courses do, I think we'd have spent the first two weeks or the first day and a half. Uh, of the of the three day course, just trying to understand what we're talking about. All of that had happened already, and I think that uh, that blend was really important. So, in in terms of your your own school, Chris, how do you see that reopening over the next few months? Um, as I say, uh, the first step is to get the teachers in, um, and we may be allowed to do that um, in 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 a week or two. Uh, we can get some of the teachers in as long as we have all the hygiene and the social distancing and et cetera, et cetera. We're still saying uh, if you can stay at home and do your job, stay at home. But uh, there are some teachers for whom that's very difficult. Um, science teachers, for example, uh, it's very hard to teach science from your kitchen. 
um, particularly at a higher level. Obviously, you want the kids in to do experiments, but we can't have that. But at the very least, you can do experiments and demonstrate them and show them and discuss them with the kids as you're doing them. So, so that's an example. There are other more practical areas where they are desperate to get into school and teach from school. Um, so that will go on for a while. At some point, um, and we don't know when this will be, it might be in the um, September, October time. Uh, it might not be till after the end of our school year in December. Um, then we will have some students back in. And the government has said that will happen gradually without explain, explaining what gradual means, of course. So we expect that uh, in order to reduce the density of kids on campus, we'll have um, maybe morning and afternoon splits, maybe some kids coming in some days, other kids coming in other days. Um, so, we, you know, there will be a blend automatically between them continuing some level of online learning at home and coming in for some face-to-face. -face. So our big question is, what do we do while they're in school that we can't do while they're at home? And what do we leave them to do at home, which is done as well, if not better, than it would be if they were in school? And that's the debate we're having at the moment. And how's that debate being formed? Is, is that with your senior team? Is that staff-wide? Is that with parents? Is that cons consultating some uh, different stakeholders? So we talked about it a lot with the senior team, uh, uh, but also other members of staff, and it's, it's spreading out amongst the whole staff. We're trying to get people to think about it. Um, we've got shared documents that we're throwing around with possible ideas. Lots of people are doing a lot of uh, research. They're attending webinars, uh, from, particularly from Asia, where obviously there are schools that have faced this challenge before we'll get to it. Um, I've worked in Asia, many of my colleagues have worked in Asia, we've got contacts of uh, leaders of schools who are saying, well, this works and this doesn't. So we're, we're trying to get as much information as we can. Our next step will be to survey the students um, and say, right, what is it you really miss about school? Uh, what is it you're unable to do at the moment because you can't come into school? And what is it that you're actually doing okay at home? And are there any things that you're actually doing better at home? So we'll, we'll try and put all that together so that we get a, a, a big picture. Um, we know that the kids miss the social activity. That's a really important part of their school life. Uh, probably the main reason they come into school in the first place. There are obviously other things. I mean, they're doing sports training at home, but it's, you know, it's quite limited when you can only do it in your apartment. Um, but they can't do any competitive sport, obviously. Um, performance, well... You can do so far with recording performances individually at home. Um, and uh, we've got a big concert uh, coming up tonight, in fact, uh, where normally we'd have, uh, I think we have 1,500 people in the audience last year and the show is put together by the students and uh, it's a wonderful event. Um, this year it's being, uh, I won't say cobbled together because there's a lot of work gone into it, it's being put together with uh, individual bits that are being edited by people recording each other at, at home. So, so that kind of thing, obviously, we need a school for. In terms of the academic teaching, that's a more difficult question, and that really depends on who you ask. Um, in my teaching, I have, uh, I find that one-to-one -one conversations with students work very well over Zoom. Um, Big classroom lessons don't work quite so well. Um, so some of that face-to-face -face I can do over the internet. 
certainly their own independent study they can do at home perfectly well they got that's that's uh, in fact without the distraction of school that's probably better done at home than it is trying to sit in the library and study when your friends are walking in and out all the time so so i think that we can we can do some of that um it's so it's yeah it's a, it's a it's a question and it's a debate it also varies on the age older students become more responsible and independent um you can trust them to get on with their work if they're motivated um and and produce a doc, something for, for for the following week without any problem for younger students they need more uh guidance and for the very young students i mean the the big challenge without a shadow of a doubt for our school has been the 3 4 5 year olds um because uh in order for them to do a task they need to be supervised for their own safety to keep them on focus and of course the teacher or the teaching assistant would do that in school but now the parents have to do it um and that's a challenge for parents particularly if they've got several kids and particularly if they're working from home as well so family issues are difficult and then there's another issue particularly for the younger ones but but also for the slightly older ones that the school performs a function of childcare parents can get on with their lives when we're looking after their kids that's not happening at the moment so uh, that's a challenge for quite a few of our parents as well so there's a lot of things to put into the jigsaw and and in a sense a gradual return enables us to <clears throat> prioritize try things um and gradually increase what we're doing as we've been doing through the through the lockdown to be honest we're doing a lot more now in terms of a global, general education than we did in the first few weeks i mean when you outline all that chris as a head of school you're juggling a lot so in terms of your leadership i mean you're a, you're a very experienced head of school but in terms of your leadership how has this how's it developed as a consequence of this time um i think it's a continuation of of what i've learned as a leader uh over the years i've been doing it um i think i've got better at it um well at least i get less complaints about it than i did when i started so that's seemed <laughs> i'd get exactly moving in the right it. direction yeah i think so um uh, and i think that that you have to be able to trust the people you put in key positions and you have to be able to trust everybody who's working for you um unless you know obviously they've demonstrated that they can't be trusted but but actually very few of the people that work uh, in my school um, have ever demonstrated that and and mostly they thrive on being given responsibility and they thrive on being put in a decision making position um so i i try to uh encourage listen and support um nudge in a direction that i think the school ought to be going and uh hopefully infuse people with my vision of where education should be going and then let them get on with it um and and stand back and and, and watch the success happen that's that's the ideal model that doesn't always work that way but it, it if it the the more effective i am as a leader the more i am in a position just to be able to say that's fantastic you're doing a great job that's absolutely in line with where we're going wonderful and and stand back and do nothing else so the ideal leadership model is 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 just 
eventually to be able to wander around saying, well done to everybody. And yes, when they ask you to do something, um, we never reach the ideal. You know, <laughs> We go that way, I hope. Uh, and I'm curious, you know, you mentioned there about nudging people in the right direction um, based around your vision for how education is going to be and your vision for the school. So can you tell us a little bit more about what is your vision? What does it look like? Mm. That's a difficult question. It's certainly not just my vision. It has to be a vision that is... Uh, that is a function of the community that we're in. Um, and I have a thing about vision statements and, and mission statements in schools. Um, I, I think that schools have no business having them and, and really shouldn't. Um, I, I really, I don't like these taglines. Um, Markham College has a tagline. But fortunately, it's in Latin, so nobody understands it. So that's great. <laughs> so I have no worries with, about that. Um, and I, I, I mean, every school I've worked in has always put together these vision statements. And I, 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 I worry about them sometimes. I, and there are benefits for them. But, yeah, it's a, it's a confusion. Because uh, the vision should change. Um, most schools have vision statements that actually, when you analyze them deeply, they run contrary to what they actually do in practice. Um, uh, one of my bugbears in, in many schools I've worked in is, is the issue of school uniform. Um, and I worked in a school where individuality was one of the key values that the school uh, um, you know, supported. Mm. And in many ways, it actually was a a wider collection of individuals than any school I've worked in. And, and in many ways, it did support individuality. But we all had them wearing the same clothes. And I, I used to say to people, but how can you say that this is individuality? We're, they're all wearing the same thing. That's not it. You're not allowing them to be individual. You are deliberately trying to make them appear the same. Um, and it's... I think that there's a lot of contradictions in, in the way in which, which schools do that. So the vision has to be flexible and the vision has to depend on the, the, the community that we're in um, uh, and, and the people that we work with. Um, and it comes out through discussion. Uh, I mean, there are very simple things that sometimes we need in discussion to go back to why are we here? Well, we're actually here for the children. So that has to be our prime concern, and anything else kind of follows. Uh, but that's, that's fairly basic stuff, really. I, I like to be in a position, following my comments on leadership of staff members, I would like to be in a position to give the students as much responsibility as possible. Um, so our students have just written, and many schools do this, it's not unique, but our students have just written a new uh, code of conduct. Um, and uh, uh, they are, and it's great. I'm I'm very proud of it. Um, in my last school, the, the the students wrote the teaching and learning policy, um, and it's one of the best documents I've ever seen. Not just because of the content. I like the content; it's very good. But it was because it's owned by the students, and uh, and owned by the the teachers who were with it. So we could we could uphold and say, are we where are we doing in this aspect 
of our learning policy because this is what we're talking about in this school. Now that policy it wouldn't be the same in my current school. Um, so for example, uh, where I've always worked in IB schools for 35 years uh, and, I, and I like the IB mission statement. Um, I think it's great. I like the um, the various documents that support that. The the uh, IB Learner Profile, for example, I think is a, is a fine document. But the difference between the IB Learner Profile that the IB have created and you take off a shelf, and one that you create yourself, is that very aspect of self creation. If you are involved in creating it, it means more. Even if it's not quite as good as the IB Learner Profile, the fact that you've created it as a school yourself means that it matters more to you and people will be more interested in promoting it. And the fact that you created it yourself means that you can change it in two years, five years, ten years, whenever you feel necessary, because you can re-examine it. And that re-examination process means, ah, we're having discussions about what education is for. Great. Let's keep that happening. In terms of discussions and in terms of getting people on board, and you mentioned the students and staff, operationally, Chris, what does that look like? I mean, for people listening to this, how will they go about starting that process? Um, at, at Markham, we have uh, a number of student councils. Um, I think uh, eight. Um, and so groups of students uh, across the year groups get together. So we have an environment council, we have an international council, a cultural council, a sports council, and, and that, you know, that, that kind of thing. Um, and they, they examine the aspects of school life that are related to what they're doing. And uh, they come and, uh, and and sit down in front of the teachers and say, we need to do this, we should be doing that, why can't we do that? Um, and that works quite well. I, I think they, what we've tried to do in the last three years is to push them into taking more responsibility for what they're doing. So I'm in our environment, council wrote the school environmental policy, for example, and are holding the teachers, I mean, this happens in many schools, holding the teachers to shame if they're, uh, not recycling their plastic bottles or or indeed using plastic bottles at all and 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 that kind of thing um, and so I think that's that's an important way forward where we haven't got to at Markham yet uh, is that they are not we don't have an academic council where the students are actually uh, telling us what we should be teaching and how um, which is where I got to in my previous school and and I'd like to to uh, I'd like to move in that direction but you know it's it, it Nothing can happen quickly. It's a slow process. What would be the benefits, Chris, of having that academic council? I think teachers labour under a lot of misapprehensions about what works in terms of learning. Um, because in some cases they don't examine it. Uh, and in some cases they... Uh, take accepted pathways as being the way in which things should be done. Schools are, in, are incredibly conservative organizations. Um, it, it's noticeable, I think, that we, we haven't moved forward in terms of our general structure for, well, hundreds of years. Um, the changes have been minor. We're still teaching the same subjects largely 
as you can read in Dickensian times. Um, okay, there have been changes, more technology, there's more design, you know, that kind of thing. But, um, and, and we still have a school day, we still have lesson times, we still break for lunch, you know, I mean, all that kind of stuff. Uh, so we are conservative. And I think that students being given the opportunity to turn around to the teachers and say, this works. And actually, you do that, but I don't learn a lot there. Um, is, is a really good discussion to have. And, and it helps teachers, I think, understand the diversity of their, of their student population. Because some students will enjoy sitting in a classroom, listening to a teacher, explaining something to them and to the whole class. Uh, other students, as soon as that happens, turn off, stare out the window or start playing with their phone under the table. And they need, teachers need to be aware that uh, one size doesn't fit all. And that, that feedback from the students about the, uh, the metacognition aspects of learning is vitally important. So what are the reasons, Chris, do you think for that not happening frequently across the education sector? I mean, I'm generalising here, obviously. Um, well, that's a complicated question because there are a lot of factors. Um, teachers quite early on in their career uh, get comfortable with a way of teaching that is successful. They get positive feedback from their students. They get uh, good assessment results. Um, they get parents saying, my child loves your lessons. And so that comfort is a conservative force. And so you, I, I, I'm the same. I mean, as a teacher, have I changed radically since I was 35? Um, I don't know. Not radically. I changed more in the first 10 years of teaching than I have in the last, uh, I'm not going to tell you how long. Um, <laughs> so, uh, so because that comfort is, a, is, a, is an impetus not to change. Um, so that's one thing. The second thing is that we set up structures in schools um, which are something of a straitjacket. Uh, structures, by structures I mean anything that creates the framework within you do your, which you do your job as a teacher. So it could be physical, it could be the size of the classroom, the type of furniture that you've got, uh, it could be technological, the uh, level of internet access, the uh, amount of uh, hardware and software that you've got to be able to do it. It could be um, temporal, how long is a lesson, how long is a school day, how often do you see them. Um, it, it could be uh, assessment driven by external bodies like exam boards um, that says you must you will be assessed in this particular way, syllabus driven, you must cover this amount of stuff. Um, all of those are structures. Uh, and what I find interesting about the process of change in a teacher is that we do a lot of uh, professional development training, all schools do. You send teachers away or they read books or they uh, do online courses more and more. Um, and all of the research shows that 
when they come back from these programs, they're really enthused and they want to change what they're doing. And for the first couple of weeks, they do. But then gradually, uh, there's an exponential decay of the effect that that change has in most cases. And they converge back to the norm because they have to fit the norm that fits the structure in which they are. So something that requires changing that structure is not is, is very, very hard to sustain. It's a real challenge for people. So those structures are a conservative force as well. Um, I could talk about that for hours uh, <laughs> and, and, have, and have done in workshops in various parts of the world before. So with but, that, then, uh, so with that like Chris, so, I mean, I've seen this in schools as well, and I, and I see it with the coaching that I do. People come back really enthused. Hmm. They come back in, as you, as you said, into a certain structure, a certain way of doing things, and they get that straight jacket but back on. Um, so and maybe this links to maybe your vision as we spoke about going forward. How do schools then create that flexibility to allow that creativity to embed throughout education? You have to change the structures. Um, you, you have to find ways to put people in different situations where they are initially uncomfortable. So I'll give you an example. Um, and uh, we, we've done, I'll, I'll, take, I'll take the example from my last school, although we've done a similar thing uh, at, at Markham, uh, and in, and, but it's just in earlier days yet, so it's not, um, uh, not so easy to talk about. Um, we introduced a course, it's a secondary school course uh, at Island School uh, in the early years of secondary school. Uh, where it was very traditional. They taught all the subjects that you had. Teachers had, uh, students came in, they had, I think, 12 different subjects in the secondary school. They had an hour of this, two hours of that, four hours of that, et cetera, et cetera. Went round from class to class. And so we said, well, we're going to get rid of some of that. So we shaved some time off all of the subject areas and created a single block, much more like the way primary schools teach. So uh, they had a, uh, a four-hour period once a week. And actually, the four-hour period was before and after lunch. So uh, they, in, in effect, it, 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 well, it was about five, five hours in a day that was devoted to this course that we called Island Time that was um, deliberately transdisciplinary, deliberately skills-based, and deliberately had no um, numerical assessment involved, which everything else in the school had. And uh, we, we, uh, when we first taught it, we sort of um, front-loaded the, the, uh, the teaching with um, senior people. So I taught it, one of my vice principals taught it, the head of maths taught it, the head of uh, science taught it, the head of humanities taught it, you know, as, as well as various other people. So we really got in there. And for secondary school teachers, that was a shock. It was a shock to go into a classroom and stay with that group of kids for four and a half hours because secondary teachers don't do that. No. And you can't teach in the traditional secondary way Stand up, exposition, here we go, now you do some stuff, and then we get back together at the end and see whether we've done it, off we go. You can't do that for four and a half hours. It just mm. doesn't work. And we didn't have a syllabus. 
There was no document that we was came down from on high that said, you must do this and understand this, you must do this and understand this. And we didn't have an assessment method that said, this is the way we will tell whether you're doing it right or not. So all of those structures disappeared. Temporal, uh, we tried to change the physical ones as well by doing as much outside as we could too. Um, but the, the four hours with the lunchtime in the middle meant that we could actually say, okay, I will now take my class down into the center of Hong Kong and we will do this today. We will go and visit that or we will survey that or, and without any disruption to anything else. So we freed that structure as well. And what was interesting was that uh, during the lunchtime or after school, we would gather together and we had the best conversations about education that I've ever had. People would sit back and say, how did you do this? What did you do? I did this. This was great. I did this. What will you do next week? Oh, that's a great idea. I'll try that. What should we do there? How do you think we'll measure where that's going? How do we give the kids a chance? All these wonderful discussions about education, where most department meetings are all about who's setting the next test? When will that be? How will we manage that? Who will move on? I mean, nothing to do with education, all Mm. to do with uh, maintenance of the structure. And it was fantastic. And I remember talking to a teacher who was teaching it. He was a music teacher, actually. And, uh, and he'd been very skeptical of the whole thing to start with. But I talked him into taking a class for the second year. And he came out of it after six months. He said, everybody should teach this class because I am now a much better music teacher because of what I've learned through teaching this other course. Hmm. And I became a better maths teacher. I was a maths teacher in those days. I became a better maths teacher and a better TOK teacher because of teaching that course. Um, so you've got to find a way to free structures um, because then people have to change their behavior. And if they're good, and hopefully all of the people we've employed are good, um, they will change their behavior in a positive way. I, mean, I suppose it's, it's the chicken and the egg here, isn't it, Chris? But you mentioned before about how education is you know, stuck in, in the dark ages, 200 years old, and everything's still geared towards that linear exam system, isn't it, going into universities. So, for example, as you know, in the UK, key stage three now is usually two years rather than three, three years key stage four to get people you know, more time to get into those subjects. So things like phenomenon-based learning in Finland, for example, when they're getting rid of subjects and having this very multidisciplinary um, you know, way of, of doing things and informal learning paradigms, non-formal learning paradigms, uh, the teacher's coach getting in experts from different places, changing the physical way. That's very difficult to do when you said everything's geared towards a different education paradigm, isn't it? So, yeah. And internationally as well, a lot of fee-paying schools, you know, people are paying a certain amount of money to get their kids into a certain university, certain grades. So how does a school balance those competing ideals of getting kids through into the exams and getting them through into a top university, but also potentially having that creativity and space to explore other areas as well? Um, I think in international education we're tremendously fortunate uh, that we have less control placed on us by authorities so that we can take risks and we can do different things so um, we we just have to have the courage to do it I think right Um, I I think there's a couple of myths uh, which need to be explored and, and perhaps exploded one is that uh, I've often been told by people, well, you know, 
all the parents want is is good grades and good universities, so, and they want academic performance. That, that's all they send their kids to school for. And and so we asked them, and we discovered that's not true. It's a myth. Um, I've done this now in two schools. Sit the parents down in groups of ten around a table with a teacher as a as a facilitator, and say, right, here's a big piece of paper. What do you want your kids to get out of a Markham College education or an Ireland school education or any school education? Very rarely do they put a good IB score, high exam results, a good university at the top of the list. They put values education very, very high. They put transferable skills education very, very high. We've got to realize that the world has moved on to talking about transferable skills long before we have done in schools. They put happiness, they put breadth, uh, and the ability to communicate with others always above academic performance. So the idea that that's all they send their kids to is, is a, a myth that we use to guard our, um, our patterns and our structures, and it isn't true. But if you do that process, you can then turn around to the parents and say, well, this is what you asked for. So this is what we're, this is how we're going to do it. Sure. Um, and I've made mistakes. I mean, the, you know, I've made changes in the past, which I thought were fantastic. And I've had a significant group of staff behind me saying, this is a really good thing to do. We're going to do this. And we didn't go through that process of saying that to the parents beforehand. And so then we had people coming in and shouting. I had lots of parents shouting at me about why am I destroying education? And um, based on the fact that, they're all experts in education. They've had one, so they know. Um, so why is the education we're having not the same as the one that they had? Um, but if you actually go through the process of saying, what do you want? And then you say, right, so this is how we're going to provide what you've asked for. Then actually it makes these changes a, a lot easier. So uh, the biggest change that we did in Ireland school was, it was a GCSE school. and um, we had lots of debates about should we stick with the GCSEs? Should we change the IB middle years program? Should we do the common ground collaborative or, you know, MYP, whatever. And um, these, these debates never really got us very far. Um, and just when we're having a full day discussion on this one day, as a throwaway discussion, um, before lunch, I said, okay, what I want you to do over lunch, just to, take our mind away from the arguments because it got quite heated about the people defending GCSEs as being the only thing to do and other people who saw the vision of the MYP as being uh, glittery and shining in the future. And, and it got quite heated. So I said, well, just calm down. I just want you to take your mind away. Think out of the box. When you come back, I want you to write down a course that you would like to teach, any course at all that you're not teaching at the moment. Could be related to your discipline. It could be related to something completely different that you never taught before, but it has to be something that you would be passionate about. So they all came back, collected in 100 pieces of paper at the end of the day, you know, thought no more of it. And then uh, <clears throat> the leadership team, we sat down together and, and we said, oh, let's have a look through these. And we saw this is the most exciting curriculum that we have ever seen. Mm. Some of the courses that people came forward with were absolutely mind-blowing. So we said, okay, 
we're going to find space for this. So what we did was we cut down the GCSEs. So instead of people taking 11 or whatever it was they took, they took seven or eight. Um, and we did our research. No university said you needed to have more than seven or eight to get in. So fine, we'll do that. And we, we created these spaces for what we call the elements courses, you know, Ken Robinson being in your element thing. Um, and we put on initially, I think, 30, and we ended up with about 50 separate courses, all of which ran for half a year. So kids would pick up, uh, they, in, in the three, um, three years of what you call Key Stage 4, they picked up 10 of these courses. And they covered uh, an incredibly wide range of, of interesting things. Um, I, the, the, we had arts courses, we had maths courses. I mean, you know, math teacher was teaching a course on cryptography, not part of the syllabus, but she loved it. And the kids loved it too. Um, we could do, we had a free economics course. We had uh, um, uh, lots of literary courses, lots that ended up with a production or an artwork or something. Um, the, the flagship course um, <coughs> excuse me, was called Fish Are Friends. Um, it was run by the head of physics. And in Fish Are Friends, they started by learning how to dive uh, and they got their scuba qualification in the school pool and going out to the waters around Hong Kong. Then they um, did environmental research in the waters around Hong Kong um, and did things like uh, set up artificial reefs uh, off, the, off the coast in Hong Kong um, that the design technology course was, was making for them. Um, and, and then they studied the return of the fish to these artificial reefs. And then they linked that with a, an environmental project. So one year they were uh, going around the market stalls, uh, collecting the horseshoe crabs that were still kicking and thriving on the, on the market stall, buying them back and releasing them back into the water. They were doing beach cleanups and everything. So it was transdisciplinary. There was a physical aspect. There was a biological aspect. There was an environmental aspect. And there was a social service aspect as well. All of that built into the same course. Uh, and it was, no surprise, very popular. Um, so uh, we, we had a lot of courses like that. People could come up with anything they wanted to come up with. We, we taught uh, philosophy through film. We taught anything at all. And, and the only criterion was, uh, are you passionate about this? Then your passion will transmit to your children. So do it. Um, and, yeah, we had, as I say, 50 really exciting courses from architecture to... Uh, cookery to anything. It was wonderful. So, and, and then we started to talk to universities about these courses. And we were told, well, the universities won't like them because there's no exam at the end. They won't get a grade and they can't compare it with anything else. But actually the university said, if you can describe what you're doing and your kids can describe what they've learned through this, we think they're wonderful. They're great. We'll learn more about your kids through the choices that they've done than we were ever would through their GCSE scores. And they got really enthused by them. I had a wonderful conversation in the architecture course. I went around the architecture course and um, uh, I said uh, to one of the kids, you know, what, uh, well, how do you find this? He said, I love it. I'm really excited by it. I've, I've enjoyed it so much. Uh, I now know that I want to be an architect. Uh, and since then, he's gone on and won prizes as a young person for architectural design and is, is now doing architecture at university. 
And I went up to another couple of kids and, and I said, how have you done? Oh, we've loved it. It's been really good. I said, well, you enjoyed doing it? Yeah, great. We've made models. We've seen buildings. We've gone out to architect studios. I said, what do you think about architecture? And, and they looked at me and said, well, I now know I don't want to be an architect. <laughs> exactly, that, yeah. That, that is just as valuable. Yeah, yeah. Just as valuable. So, I mean, so, uh, you, you, you've touched on a lot of things there, Chris. So, I mean, in terms of a broader vision for education going forward, how would you like to see that progress? Um, I think there'll be a lot more online, definitely. Uh, it will become an important, important part of school education. Um, so we've got to be able to work out how we make the most of that and how we get the most out of it. I would like to see uh, much more opportunity for teachers to be very broadly creative in the way in which we did those elements courses. Where we didn't get to at Ireland School, and I, would, I, I don't know whether they got there since I left, but I would like to have seen to get there, is that actually students have an important part in deciding what those courses are going to be as well. We built it into the courses so that the teachers had to say there will be an important part of student choice within the course. But um, I'd like to have them having more choice in, in the courses that they're doing as well. Um, where we're going uh, in, in Markham is, is pushing that idea of transdisciplinary skills-based course all the way through the school to connect our early years and our lower school and our, and our upper school together because um, they've been a bit disparate in the past. So, again, it's got to be pushed all the way down and it's got to be, um, uh, it's got to be coherent and it, and it needs to change for different age groups. And uh, so, so, yeah, lots of opportunity for people to engage in things that they're passionate about and for young people to discover what they're passionate about um, and, and use the skills that they learn in specific subject areas in, in practical and, and valuable ways. And within that vision then, Chris, what are the implications for things like teacher training, initial, initial teacher training, but also um, CPD with teachers who are a little bit more experienced? Um, I don't know. Yeah, I, I don't know the answer to that. Um, I, I, I've, my suspicion is that initial teacher training uh, tends to be uh, constrained by the structures that trainers see in schools um, and therefore inadvertently uphold those structures. So it's difficult. I think it needs to be led by the schools and then the teacher training needs to follow. So if more schools have the opportunity to have more uh, places where teachers can have a creative input on a course, then in teacher training, you can start to say to people, what would you teach? What would you like to teach? At the moment, if, if you're, doing, you're leading the PGCE program, if you spent time saying to teachers, if there were no structures, what would you love to teach? You're just creating a false uh, dawn for them that when they get into schools, they're not going to be allowed to do. So I think it probably has to be led by the school. Um, professional development 
what was good about the Learn Fest that we did last year is that people who were doing exciting things in one school could share the exciting things they were doing in the other school. So again, I'd like to see professional development to be more of a bottom-up approach than a top-down approach. I think a lot of the things that you're talking about, Chris, it sounds that bottom-up approach, isn't it? Whether you're talking about yeah. policy change, students having more uh, choice in the subjects that they're doing, the same with staff. Um, and again, what are the difficulties, you think, in enacting that in a school setting? Allowing people uh, or getting people to allow themselves to release a, level, a certain amount of control. That's the hardest part. And are you talking about school leaders? Um, everybody, certainly school leaders uh, and, and teachers. Uh, you know, but again, it, it, it very much depends on your environment. In international schools, or at least the ones that I've worked in, students by and large, certainly not all, but by and large are well motivated and aspirational and want to achieve and see a value in learning uh, their parents succeeded because they had success from learning and that gets passed on <clears throat> so i'm talking very much in that environment and if a teacher starts out their teaching in a school as i did in an inner london comprehensive that is very different from that um, where control is what you need to survive um, it's hard to let go of that control when you don't need it. Okay. Well, many thanks, Chris. I mean, there's some fascinating stuff that was that we did discuss today. So uh, it's very much appreciated. Thank you for, for calling in from Peru. Um, I know you're, you're a few hours behind me, so it's very much appreciated. Thank you so much for your time. It's a pleasure, Nick. It's been good talking to you. Thanks very much for the time. Thank you. Um, if you are interested in the leadership coaching and development offerings at Pursue or would like to connect to discuss any of the topics in the show, please send me an email at hello at pursue.com or visit our website pursue.com. You can also follow me on LinkedIn at Nicholas Mackay or Pursue. Take care and look forward to speaking to you again soon.